On today's Sunday to Monday podcast, we talk about helping the poor. Sunday I preached on uh, how the, the Christian responsibility to the outcast, the marginalized, and uh, so it was a lot of fun. It took some good questions, and I think it got some folks thinking. So, Jonathan, how you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. It's a beautiful day, and I just had some good barbecue. So. Where'd you eat? Albert G's. Is that the one that'd be bad, or is that the other one? That's Elber's that it'd be bad. Never mind. I don't Stupid know. question. I enjoyed it. There's a barbecue place in town that's their adver- their advertisement is it be bad. Oh right, yeah, I think that is Elmer's. Okay, sorry, uh, never mind. All right, so we are it's Labor Day weekend, and yep. so we're going to get this out before Labor Day, so you'll have something to do while you're at the lake, because I know there's nothing you'd rather do at the lake than listen to Jonathan and I pontificate about what the Bible says about helping the poor. Absolutely, and. One of the things I really appreciated in your sermon was uh, all the scripture you brought out about helping the poor. Now, in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, we have various laws, including the, the year of Jubilee, as well as God just straight out saying, there will be no poor among you. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus setting up a new community in which everyone would be equal and uh, the poor would be taken care of. So I guess that begs the question, why... Why do you think the modern evangelical church does such a poor job of loving the poor? Well, I want to be careful uh, on one hand because I think the evangelical church is doing a better job than it has in the last hundred years. And uh, various churches do a a good job. Uh, Some some do wonderful, uh, really do a wonderful job. Um, How long of an answer do you want to this question? As long as you want. (laughs) Uh, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, it is weird. I, honestly, I have probably never been more uncomfortable about a sermon topic than I was about this one. I think two years ago I was asked to say something about politics. I was pretty uncomfortable about that one. But this one was very uncomfortable for me. Um, and I, I think that's just because we live in such a uh, divided, tribalistic society that it feels like any... Anything you say that sounds like what the other tribe says, people mm-hmm. interpret it as a um, as a critique, or you know, you don't love America, or you're. I don't know. It's just weird. It's just a weird time. I mean, like you said, the Bible is incredibly clear about what God thinks about the poor and what uh, our the Christian's responsibility is toward the poor, and yet, uh, why in the world would I be uncomfortable about talking about that? Yeah. You know, that's the most clear message in the Bible next to salvation through faith in Christ. And and possibly there's more verses about it. So it's strange that it's, you know, such a hostile topic. Um, let's, let's just kind of unpack a little bit of the history. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, early uh, 1830s, 40s, and, and on, of course, slavery was a huge part of uh, life in the American South. And that really is where the evangelical church gets its roots. Uh, the Southern Baptist Church is clearly Southern. The uh, you know half of the Methodist Church owes its background to the uh, to the Southern half of the country. The our, our denomination, the PCA, was originally the Southern Presbyterian Church during the um, not PCUS, but it was referred to as the Southern Presbyterian Church, and right. it was in the Southern states during the Civil War. And all these churches really specialized because they they just couldn't preach on helping the poor, helping the marginalized, 
without talking about slavery. It would be, you know, it was just right there in front of them. And so they didn't. They just didn't talk about it at all. And unfortunately, that that compromise, it was a compromise, and I don't begrudge them for compromising. I probably would have done the same thing. As I've told you before, I don't have the gift of martyrdom. Uh, I'd rather preach and run away and live to preach another day. So, uh, but they they just refused to preach about slavery, so they didn't really talk much about helping the poor, mm-hmm. and that kind of formed this seedbed of an evangelicalism that only talks about quote unquote spiritual matters. Yeah. How are you with Jesus? How are you with sin? How is your you know when we talk about holiness, all we ever want to talk about is you know do you pray? Do you go to church? Do you tithe? We don't ever talk about are you helping the poor. And uh, I think that's where it got started. I think it was made worse uh, in the tw- 19-teens and 1920s uh, by uh, there was just kind of a division in the American church between, and this really affected the North, uh, between those who cared about doctrine or truth or the truth of the Bible and those who promoted what they called a social gospel and wanted to focus more on helping the poor and bringing God's kingdom to bear on earth uh, that way. Um, and that's kind of where some of the, the liberal conservative distinctions came. And then um, they just kind of kept going that, that two, the two various routes until today. And so yeah. uh, that's where a lot of it is. But I, I think, honestly, I don't know when things started to change. I know we talked about it a lot more in the 80s, mm-hmm. helping the poor. And that became a real push for some churches. The Presbyterian Church I was a part of helped a lot then. Yeah. Um, so I think it's gotten better. Uh, Habitat for Humanity has been a good ministry. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, yeah, I think the church, and especially some evangelical leaders, are, are realizing that there's there really is a false dichotomy, that you are either about the gospel or about social justice slash helping the poor slash doing things that are more than just yeah. spiritual. Um, but you can do both. And I think the Bible actually calls us to Absolutely. Do both There's no question the Bible calls us. In a responsible us, way. Yeah, the Bible calls us to, to love each other with word and with deed, with uh, with love and with truth. And so uh, I think definitely there's no question we, we need to do both. And I'm, I'm excited to see the evangelical church doing both. Yeah, so. good. Well, let's dive into some questions. We have yeah. a, a number of questions, both on uh, the text number and the email. Um but we'll, let's go. Let's start with going back into the Bible and some questions about that. We've got a good question that says, Are Old Testament laws, such as gleaning, simply pointing to the importance of work for mankind's full flourishing, regardless of the economic strata in which the person currently resides? No, I don't think it's simply. I mean, right. the, the landowners uh, were working, but they were told they had to leave food in, in, the, in the field. And so uh, I, they do, you know, it does, it does respect a poor man's dignity to let him go out and do the work to get it. And I, I wish we, you know, that's one of the things we have to think hard about is how can we respect people's dignity so that we are giving them ways to go out and, and do work uh, and, and to support themselves, making it easier for people to get entry-level positions and support themselves and their families. Right. Yeah, I think the Bible is clearly pro-work. Oh, clearly. But those gleaning laws, it's pretty explicit that they are a way of caring for the poor. Mm -hmm. And those who can't uh, 
buy their own field. Yeah. Who don't have their own farm equipment or whatnot. Just allow some of, don't glean all the way to the edges of your property. Let the, at the yeah. ends of it. It's hard to imagine like uh, like what the response would be to a law like that today. It'd be pretty funny. It's funny you say that because our ne- Give me next one. question is, in what ways do the Old Testament gleaning laws translate into the Western world's industrialized and increasingly technocentric economy. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you know when we look at it old, when we are looking at Old Testament laws and, and trying to apply them today, we use a principle that, called the general equity. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it? You know, what, how do we how do we transfer it to our culture in a way that pre- pre- preserves you know essentially what this law was trying to, to get at, and so. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of public school. This is one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of public school. I think it does do that essentially. It, it takes uh, taxes instead of you know saying you can't go and glean uh, all you know you can't harvest all your food. You have to leave some of the the grain in the field, some of the food in the field. And, and this way, just kind of recognizes that I, like, I don't even know what gleaning would look like mm-hmm. honestly. But it says, okay, let's let's take some of the excess. Let's take some of the margins. And let's combine it together to give people a chance. Uh, you know, I'm a product of public schools. I grew up uh, poor, and public schools gave me a chance. Yeah. And I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for that. Um, there's other great things, like the city of Tulsa has a, uh, a day labor um, opportunities now mm-hmm. where they actually drive trucks through the streets, and any uh, homeless or any of those uh, who are out of work can get in the trucks and go out and do day labor and be paid for their wages. Yeah. I think that's a tremendous uh, effort by the city of Tulsa. I'm very proud of them for doing that. I recently read an article, and I can't remember where, but it was talking about this idea of gleaning into today's society. And it talked about one uh, tech company that had its own building, but it had a few unused offices. And so they huh. actually allowed a nonprofit church charity hmm. to use one of the offices for free. Yeah. And, uh, and the boss was kind of afraid that, you know, his people would resent those people. And he found the opposite was true. Hmm. They actually took a lot of pride in the fact that we're, cool. we're allowing them to meet here for free. And there's, you know, what we're doing, it's, it's bigger than just us. Yeah. I think that was that's a great. That's a great. One. Yeah. You know, it, it's great. I think, um, I think any of those opportunities where it, it just requires thought. Yeah. You know, it requires kind of figuring it out. How can we build ladders so that people can can climb out of the holes that maybe they're in because their parents made bad decisions. Maybe they're in because they just um, didn't fit into school. Yeah. You know, I mean, I feel really bad for a lot of people, especially boys. A lot of boys just don't do well behind the desk, you know, and so they don't mm-hmm. do well academically. And they, that just puts them so far behind. And uh, any, anything that we can do like this to kind of build a ladder for them to dig their way out, I think is positive. Good. All right, here's another biblical question. Uh, why isn't slavery completely denounced in the New Testament? Well, uh, that's a great question, and I'm, I'm always happy to answer it. Uh, slavery, as it was practiced in Bible times, was very different uh, than it is today uh, in, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, most people who were slaves chose to do that voluntarily. 
They were in debt. There was no possible way that they could uh, provide for themselves or their families, and so they would uh, go into to service. Uh, a slave in the Bible could have been a lawyer. Hmm. You know, it could have been um, it, basically it was just meaning you served under this landowner because you know the landowners were the only people who had what we call capital. Right. And if you didn't have capital, there was no way to get it. And so you went and you uh, hired yourself out or you served. Uh, and, and and honestly, in some ways, being a slave in those days had a lot more security than being a day server, a day laborer. And so uh, it was not a, a negative position. Uh, now, there are certain things that the Bible does condemn, outright condemn. It condemns kidnapping, mm-hmm. condemns lifelong servitude. Uh, and, and and those things were the basis of you know 18th and 19th century slavery, which depended purely upon the kidnapping of of African natives and, and shipping them all over the world, um, and then keeping them in slavery for life, and uh, taking their children, and then and of course not even just to mention just the evil things that were done to the slaves right. through rape and. Uh, murder and, and beatings. Yeah, it's totally involuntary. Yeah, it was totally it involuntary. Like the there was no way to get out of it. There was no way to buy your way out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it's a completely different thing. And, and those kinds of things, like the man stealing, for instance, uh, that was a that was a an offense punishable by a stoning. Right. So that was that's condemned. And you know that and human heart is so uh, deceitful, according to Jeremiah. I. I you know this, Jonathan. The nineteenth century, nineteenth century theologians are uh, with a, uh, at one point was a real interest of mine, and Southern nineteenth uh, century theologians are. I still have a whole shelf shelf of their books, and I can show you articles in those books that say, uh, "Yes, the slave trade was evil, but owning slaves was not." Wow. And uh, you know, I, yeah. I, my heart's wicked. I can I can justify that kind of junk too, mm-hmm. but. Uh, yeah, that, that's a little bit of the background there. Yeah, good. All right, one more Bible question, and then we'll jump into some some more application questions. Uh, someone asked, Isaiah 58, 7 says mm-hmm. to bring the homeless poor into our houses. Does this mean I'm sinning if I don't pick up any homeless folks I see and put them in my extra bedroom? No, I don't think so. Again, this is a general equity question. Uh, a lot has changed in, in those periods since then. I do think we need to um, do what we can to help the homeless poor in a wise way. And we are. We have a ministry uh, that we support out of this church called City of Hope. And uh, that that does focus on the homeless poor. And there's great ministries in town. I, I love living in Tulsa. I'm proud of Tulsa because of a lot of the ministries um, that are in this town for the homeless poor. And honestly, it's just unwise um, those ministries are great, and people know about them. And it's just a fact that there are those who choose not to go into those shelters. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of times, those can they can either be mentally ill and or dangerous people. Not always. Some people just make yeah. the choices. But uh, I, I think it's we. You know, the 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 command there is that we need to be doing what we can to house the, the poor. And, and and I think we're both through the city. And through the the ministries in the city, we're doing a, as good a job of that as any yeah. of, of attempting that. Good. Okay. 
Let's jump into some uh, maybe tougher questions here. Given scripture in this sermon, what's the appropriate response to the migrant crisis at the border? Or at least how should we talk to fellow Christians about it? Yeah, that's a good one. You're welcome, Ricky. <laughs> no, I didn't write the question. Right? Yeah, no, you didn't. Um, you know, I think the word should is a powerful question. I think whenever we're talking about laws, we need we have a great gift as Americans. And that gift is a declaration of independence. And um, the Declaration of Independence says that rights are given to us by God and they cannot be denied by the state. Uh, all men are created equal, uh, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Mm-hmm. Rights come from God, from the creator, and they're inalienable. So if our laws are denying somebody the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, then those are unjust laws. And honestly, I think we need to have a, a serious conversation about whether our laws, as they affect migrants, are just or not, or not. What would be an unjust law? An unjust law would be a law that seeks to weed out immigrants based upon their wealth or education. Yeah. Um, that's not fair. You know, that is saying that certain people have the right to come into this state and other people don't. Um, those, those are all important conversations. And I realize that uh, the political climate today is incredibly um, hostile to really any serious conversation yeah. about uh, immigration. And that's just a, it's a terrible place to be where you can't have a serious conversation. Um, I would encourage people to study, actually study immigration. Uh, there's a great podcast you can listen to if you're like me and, You'd rather listen to somebody than than read a book. Um, Malcolm Gladwell has a podcast in the first season of Revisionist History, maybe the second season, about immigration. And and just the the exhaustive research that has been done that has shown, for instance, that Mexicans have always come come into America during the uh, harvest season. Mm -hmm. And that was the way they've been supporting their family for generations. And it was no big deal. Nobody cared. And they always went back. And then we started trying to, quote, unquote, enforce our borders so they couldn't go back, which meant that their families had to come here with them and has really created a lot of the crisis that we have today. So I would encourage you to study it. I would encourage people to have a long range view of it. Go back and look at um, some of the things that Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush were saying in 1980. George Bush was encouraging us to have the the world's most compassionate, humane uh, immigration laws in the world. Um, I think those are, you know, that's the better America. That's better than the the debates that are going on today. And I I would encourage us to be a better America. Um, At the very least, we have to treat people with decency and respect. They're the image of God. uh, And and that's not dependent upon where they are born. And so... uh, like I said, I have strong views. You can disagree about some of uh, some of those views and be a Christian, obviously. There are other things, such as saying we, we have to treat people with decency and respect, that you can't disagree on. You just can't be a Christian and disagree on that. Right. And so, um, you know, and, and the problem is we just can't, it, there's just very few honest debates. Um, mm-hmm. So That's a good answer, Ricky. I 
you've thought about that a lot, a lot more than I have. Um, only thing I have to add is I actually just had lunch with a young couple who got married, um, and she's from Vietnam and is uh, like she's caught in the middle. Mm-hmm. Her residency card, whatever, green card, mm-hmm. is about to expire. And she, that would be a visa. Green card visa, permit. yes, yeah. yes. So she's trying. She's applied for the green card. She's trying to get that, but there's there's going to be a bit of a gap between the mm. visa and the green card. And so she says she's going to have to stop driving because if she gets pulled over, she, yeah, she's really she be deployed. Yeah. Uh, so it's a tough issue, uh, and it it touches so many people. It is. It's a very very hard issue. All right. One well, next question. How do we confront our Christian friends who are oblivious to their favoritism of one race or one economic strata of people over another? Is it simply asking them if they're loving their neighbor without favoritism as perfectly as Jesus, or are there some other less confrontational ways to address this blindness? Hmm. Well, you know, I'm not the person to ask on how-to questions <laughs> with confrontation. I, uh, I just choose to not confront and talk bad about people behind their back. That's kind of the way I do it. So, um, you know, I don't recommend that. I don't recommend that. I'm telling you what I do do, not what I ought to do. Um, Trying to stop. Trying to get better. So, yeah, I think asking people why they feel that way, um, asking people uh, just to examine, you know, the the place that I, I found the most traction when I've lived among uh, just folks who are blind to their own racism and, and favoritism was to talk about children. Mm. You know, I, I think I would just ask, you know, when did the children ask to be born of a certain color or did those children ask to be born in that neighborhood? Did they ask to be born with those parents? Yeah. You can, you know, tongue in cheek, just say, "Well, you know, aren't you lucky that you picked such good parents? You sure were smart." Yeah, uh, I, I, I do think there is something about children that are disarming, mm-hmm. and um, and force people to question uh, how they feel, and and then you know, just this hope that the the Lord gets in there and begins to work and to uh, move them. Yeah. What do you think? I know you thought a lot about racial issues. Yeah, um, it's it's another one of those conversations like the the border crisis mm-hmm. that's so charged, and uh, it's hard to 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 talk about blind spots people with have without them getting defensive. Mm-hmm. And I know I I was that way, and I you know I I've only gradually changed my views after mm-hmm. reading a lot and and talking to people who had a better yeah grasp of the issues than I did and sort of seeing my privilege mm-hmm. as a middle class white person I just can't deny that how much is done for me sure over my life um, I think you also have a little bit of a uh, of a ace up your sleeve because I think probably people assume you've just been upper middle class yeah <laughs> all your life and they have no idea you came from such poverty single mom and yeah yeah, I'm not lucky. <laughs> yeah, aren't you lucky? <laughs> no, uh, it's a little bit. It's a little class my whole life. It's a little dis, uh, disarming for folks, but um, yeah, you know the, the tendency, the danger, the danger on the other side is um, 
you know, we'll for me to really confront, you know, my racism, which was pretty strong in me. Mm. I mean, I, and that's that's just, you know, that's my roots showing and where I come from showing and my my privilege and it was very strong in me. And it took a long time and many years and thought and prayer and reading great books. The best book I wrote, wrote read, the best book I read on the issue was called More Than Equals mm-hmm. uh, by Spencer uh, Rice, Spencer Perkins and Chris Rice. Yeah. And uh, and really just letting the, the truth of their words hit me in the heart. Uh, and, you know, then after, you know, after spending, you know, that slow change over the period of years, I would give people about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. To come to where I am now, and I get mad at them and snarky and mean, and uh, so that's that's something I'm trying to learn to be better at now in my old age. Is uh, yeah, it took me a while. It's gonna take you a while, and mm-hmm. so to be to be gracious and patient. All right, one more question. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. How's this? Do we have any listeners left? <laughs> we'll never know. That's so weird. Yeah, nope, I don't know. <laughs> but if you're still listening, uh, bagel on me. Or something. Uh, along the lines of this Bagel work, on me, what? I'll buy you a bagel. Oh, all right. Sorry. Text Jonathan if you got to this point it's, in the podcast and he'll buy you a bagel. There you go. Along the lines of um, uh, talking about work and a hierarchy error, how do we encourage others in a lower economic strata than our current one that no work is truly menial? Or put another way, how do we encourage those in perceived menial jobs to take joy in their work? You know... I don't think we really have to to as much as you think we do. This is funny, but it's true. And again, I know this. Like, I knew my mom ran the high school cafeteria. Mm-hmm. I was always friends with all the custodians. They liked their jobs. Uh, you know, other people kind of looked down upon them, and that was weird. So you don't really have to. But but my mom took great joy in her job, great pride in her job. You know, the custodian of our church, uh, who's also serves as a custodian at Union, loves his job, um, is really proud of, of the job that he does, the work that he does. So I don't think, you know, that is as much a problem as, you know, getting, you know, it's very difficult, to, difficult you know, in today's society to get like middle class kids to consider going into manufacturing, which is not even a bad job. I don't know when that became a bad job. That's so yeah. weird that that uh, that word manufacturing is associated with like menial. I guess I don't know, right. but people don't even want to consider it. That's another issue. That's not the question. I really you get you you affirm someone's dignity when you just talk to them without talking down to them. Yeah. So anytime you can, you know, just show someone respect and talk to them and get to know them and ask them about their family, you're. You know that's that's how you show somebody love for them and, and dignify them, not necessarily by having a national custodians day or whatever mm-hmm. that stuff is. Yeah, and I think we can probably really help the conversation if we don't always automatically assume that someone wants to get out of yeah. a lower paying job or they yeah. they want to get their masters, they want to do something <laughs> else. You yeah, know? I I think we're just sort of bent that I know I am. Yeah, thinking. The cult of, of success and never-ending right. progress. And and always getting to the next promotion yeah. and um, more money and more. Yeah. And that creates whatever. a real problem. You know, there's a problem. And again, that's something that we have to put thought into is pay. 
in wages. Yeah. And I understand the arguments of those who say, you know, if we raise minimum wage, then you know, it's going to cause inflation. I understand the economic ar- ar- argument behind that. I'm not sure it's true, but it might, might well be. And, and some want to argue, well, you know, minimum wage is only supposed to be for entry-level positions. But there are some people who will never get past an entry-level position, yeah. quote-unquote. You know, and, you know, a, a custodian who's 50 years old could be replaced by a custodian who's 18. Should we, though? Is that the right thing to do? So I don't, yeah. you know, I don't know the answers to those questions. I just think it requires more than quick knee-jerk responses, and that's from the left or the right. You know, the left mm-hmm. want to say, you know, raise minimum wage, raise minimum wage, living wage, and the right's like, no, no, no. And I don't think either, uh, either of us are really sitting down thinking about the human cost mm. of what that means. I don't. I don't. It's hard. It is hard. And so, uh, you know, but there's, the, the good news is uh, there's a lot of really thoughtful, intelligent people out there. And if we put our heads together, I think we can, uh, we can, we can bless the poor. Yep, we can do it. Thanks, John. This has been fun. Absolutely. Good discussion. If you have questions, always send them in to info at riveroakstulsa.com. We'll keep doing our best to answer them. We admit, hey, we spent two years, basically two years with about five podcasts. And uh, it's hard for us sometimes to find a time during the week, but we're going to both commit to to kind of setting a regular time when we do this and, and really commit to getting one out. Our goal is to get 40 out this year, 40 podcasts in 52 weeks. You think we can do that? I think we can. I think we can do that. That's not like, you guys set a goal. Set a reachable yeah. goal. So, and like I said, if you have any more questions, please send them to info at riveroakstulsa.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. It's fun.